This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times bestselling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. <laughs> you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. There's a song I really like by John Guerra called uh, Citizens, and the lyrics are really powerful. And part of the song says this, there is a wolf who is ranting, all of the sheep, they are clapping, promising power and protection, claiming the Christ who was killed. Killed by common consensus, everyone screaming Barabbas, trading their God for a hero, forfeiting heaven for Rome. That's what we're going to talk about today is Rome, the good and the bad. And I think there are going to be some of you who will say, well, Rome doesn't really apply to me. The ancient Roman Empire is ancient, but I think you're going to find there are a lot of reverberations and resonances and parallels that we need to think about right now. And that's why I'm really glad to have with us today on the show Tom Holland, who not Spider-Man Tom Holland, but Tom Holland, the historian, the award-winning biographer, broadcaster, writer. He wrote the book that had immense attention given to it and its ongoing attention called Dominion, which is about how those of us in the West, even very secular people and civilizations have been affected by the Christian religion. And now he has a book called Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. 
Tom Holland also hosts the Rest is History podcast. Tom Holland, thanks so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I know because I have heard interviews with you where almost inevitably people ask the question about this. I, I, I have to say less an anecdote than a meme that emerged about how often men think about right. the Roman Empire, <laughs> yes. which <laughs> when I first heard that, I thought, well, I know I think about the Roman Empire all the time, but it's because I'm teaching the Bible. But I didn't know most normal people did. Is that is that true? Well, that that meme started spreading just as PAX was coming out in the U.S., and loads of people were asking me, wow, your publicists in America are geniuses. How <laughs> clever of them to have set that up. So I'm very, very grateful to whoever it was on TikTok or whatever <laughs> who set that hair running. But I do think that, I, I, I mean, it clearly demonstrated that Rome does continue to exert a fascination, perhaps particularly in the United States, because the United States in its foundation owed so much to the example that had been set by the Roman Republic in particular. So that's why you have a Senate. That's why you have a, a capital. And the sense that Rome therefore continues to hold lessons for Americans, perhaps particularly, I think is a really resonant one. Do, do you think there's any significance to what the, the meme was talking about, particularly was men? Do you think there's something significant about that? Well, I, th I mean, there are certainly plenty of women who think about it as well. So in my country, Britain, our most famous classicist, Mary Beard, is a woman. And uh, there are multitudes of brilliant female scholars who study it. But it may be what that kind of identification of the Roman Empire, the empire with all its legions, its swagger and its glamour, was focusing on was the sense in which perhaps part of the fascination that the Roman Empire holds is as a kind of apex predator, a kind of a tyrannosaur, mm. the tyrannosaur of antiquity. And I think because the Roman Empire is sufficiently removed from us, you know, it's a millennium and more since the last Roman capital, Constantinople, fell, and 2,000 years really since it, 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 the Roman Empire enjoyed its heyday. Therefore, perhaps, people, and, and, and one might say particularly men, can enjoy the glamour and the cruelty of its legions and of its emperors in a way that they wouldn't with more recent imperial powers. Mm. I suspect that that's a crucial part of it. Seems more distant and almost fictional. And therefore safer. To, to them, huh? I rather, you know, and I, I can compare it to a tyrannosaur. I think, again, part of the appeal that dinosaurs exert, say, famously on small boys is because they're simultaneously terrifying, but because they're extinct, safe to contemplate. Well, what do you think that people most often, uh, do you find, do they get wrong when they think about uh, ancient Rome? The way in which the founding fathers of the United States compared themselves to the founding fathers of the Roman Republic, there has been an enduring tendency on the part of people throughout Western history to assume that the Romans hold an uncomplicated mirror up to us in a sense that they are very like us. And I don't think they were like us at all. I think they were very, very alien, very, very frightening. And the things about the Romans that make them seem familiar to us actually 
I think when you look at them closely, only serve to enhance the way in which the differences are all the more unsettling. Hmm. You know, several years ago, there was a book by Tom Wolfe, Man in Full. I mean, it was a long time ago, maybe maybe twenty years or more. But it was it was a novel about a, if I remember right, a prisoner who started reading Epictetus and started to become involved in Stoicism. And one of the things that we've seen over the past several years is this revival of a kind of pop Stoicism. As you look at that. Is this kind of the same thing California's in Buddhism relation to genuine Buddhism or or is there really something in actual stoicism that people are picking up on or or other philosophies of the ancient world? I, I think that stoicism of all the philosophies that have survived into the present day is the most accessible to us because it does preach a kind of universalism that I think, and a notion of conscience that had an influence on Christianity. And because Christianity is, of course, the dominant cultural legacy of the Roman Empire, anything that is in tune with that is more accessible to us. So kind of Neoplatonism, or it, it seems much stranger, I think, to us. You won't find many Neoplatonists. But Stoicism... Because it kind of goes with the grain of, of many Christian assumptions, I think is easier to take on board. And I think also, again, going back to this idea that there is something masculine about the Roman Empire, I think it offers an appeal mm. to men in particular because the model of whether it's Marcus Aurelius the emperor or Epictetus the slave of the Stoic is of a kind of a 1950s cowboy a rugged frontier man, perhaps, mm. who is having to take on the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And perhaps that appeals particularly to men in this age. Do you think it's also to its benefit that it, it, one can adopt a kind of stoic vision without necessarily accepting supernatural? Yeah, I think that's a crucial part of it. Yeah. I mean, although having said that, the stoic idea that the divine is in everything including within it every individual. I mean, that's not a, a theologically neutral concept by definition. But I think that, that if you phase that out, you kind of turn down the dial on that. There is enough in Stoicism that it can appeal to people who don't necessarily want to buy into a kind of supernatural understanding of the universe. The title of this new book is Pax Peace, and, and we think, of course, about the imperial uh, peace around the world from the Roman Empire. Maybe one reason that people are thinking a lot about the Roman Empire right now is because we are living in a time that feels, we can argue about whether or not it is, but it feels particularly unstable. And feels particularly non-Pacific right now. When you think about the the peace that was maintained by Rome, was that genuine? In, in other words, are there things that we could apply to a situation where Ukraine seems to be on the verge of disaster? The Middle East seems to be on the verge of absolute a catastrophe. We have the ongoing issues with North Korea and, and so forth, and the world just doesn't seem to be holding together. 
what what can we learn from ancient Rome? I th- I think that this is another example of the way in which parallels can be treacherous, because mm-hmm. the Roman Empire in its heyday, in the in the second century AD, which is what Pax is effectively covering, is a period where the Romans had pushed to the limits pretty much of the known world as they understood it. Those regions of the world that they did not conquer, they viewed as not worth conquering. So the Mm. most famous marker of Roman power, certainly in my country, Britain, to have survived is Hadrian's Wall, which he built midway across Mm -hmm. the island of Britain. And this is often seen as being a defensive structure. So it inspired George R.R. Martin to come up with the idea of you know his great wall of ice in Game of Thrones. But it mm. wasn't a defensive structure to the Romans. It was an expression of contempt for all those who lay beyond it, that they weren't worthy of being included in the garden of the world, because it was essentially like a billionaire putting up electric gates to keep the riffraff out. That was the mm. marker. And the Romans, when they looked at the, the wilds of Scotland or the forests of Germany or the deserts of the Sahara, essentially thought, they're not worth the bother of conquering. And within that understanding, there was no one beyond the limits of Roman rule who could possibly challenge Roman power. And if they did, they would be pulverized, perhaps even annihilated completely. So the Roman peace was within the, you know, the, the, the corner of Eurasia that the Romans occupied. It was founded on a pretty absolute monopoly of violence, which of course the United States does not possess because it is, you know, it's facing Russia, it's facing mm-hmm. China, it's facing a host of, of, of rival powers. The Romans didn't face that. The only power that, they, that, that really caused them any bother was the Parthians who ruled an empire that included Iran and modern-day Iraq. The Caesars maintained their peace by upholding a monopoly of violence. And although the traditional English translation of the Latin word Pax is indeed peace, you could also translate it as pacification. The peace is absolutely real, mm. but it is upheld at the point of a sword. Mm. You know, there's a, a sort of a common trope that a lot of people hold that the Roman Empire was built on a certain understanding of human virtue. And that when this virtue could no longer hold, neither could the empire. In what places is that accurate or inaccurate? This this is a concept that Roman historians themselves are, are, are quite fond of. So the great historian of the heyday of the Roman Empire, the, the period when the, the empire is at, at its absolute apogee, is a, a man called Tacitus, who will be familiar to to anyone interested in the history of the early church because Tacitus mentions Christ and describes the Emperor Nero accusing the Christians in Rome of having set fire to the city and torturing them to death. But Tacitus is a conservative who is looking back to the, the age of the Republic that had existed before Rome became an autocracy under Julius Caesar and his adoptive son, the, the man who becomes Augustus. And Tacitus feels that the servitude that he sees as as having befallen the Roman people is in part due to their very greatness, that they have become soft, that their wealth and their power has made them servile, has made them unworthy to be the heirs of their great forebears. 
And this is a, a very powerful narrative that I think informs a lot of how people today understand Rome. So if we think of Imperial Rome, the likelihood is that people will think of orgies, of depravity, of mm -hmm. unsuitable murders, of, of mothers having sex with sons, all kinds of unspeakable horrors. But all the, th this is a sense that comes from the Romans themselves. The sense of Roman decadence is itself a product of conservatives saying that the Romans are betraying their heritage. And this then gets picked up in, in the Enlightenment by particularly Edward Gibbon, the great historian of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, who, who kind of is very, very influenced by Tacitus and, and takes this as a model to explain the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. But Gibbon, who is a figure of the Enlightenment, very skeptical of Christianity, then kind of complicates the narrative by saying that it's not just that the Romans in their heyday have become kind of corrupt by their greatness, but that then by adopting Christianity, this has weakened and softened them even further and, and essentially corroded the ancient martial spirit of the Roman people. Because our word virtue derives from the Latin word virtus, which literally means the quality of a vir, a man. So it's kind of manliness would be another, another way of describing it. And Gibbon says that Christianity weakens that virtus, that men who previously might have gone and, and joined a legion are now going off into the desert to live as monks. And that this also is a contributory factor to the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, I think that that, that is a myth. I actually think that, that Christianity plays a decisive role in enabling the Roman Empire to cohere to the degree that it does. Ready to rise above loud, angry headlines? Longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you. From the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. Many contemporary Christians are often perplexed by how to, to make sense of the, of the symbols there and so forth. What, what in your view, do documents such as that, the, the apocalypse, tell us about the relationship between Rome and early Christians? Well, we have contradictory evidence for that. Of course, earlier than Revelation are the letters of Paul that I think can be interpreted, and particularly his letter to the Galatians, as a, a brilliant parody of the fastest growing cult that the world had ever seen, which was not Christianity, but the culture of Caesar Augustus, the divine founder of 
the dynasty of emperors that ruled the world when Christ was crucified. But Paul is also a Roman citizen, able to move around the empire because of the, the peace that the emperors had imposed and because of the infrastructure that the legions had built. I mean, that's how, you know, you can take ships, you can go along roads because of that. And so he he's careful not to make his his contempt for the pretensions of the Caesars overt. And of course, in his letter to the Romans, he, sa- he famously says the powers that be are ordained by God, which will enable the Roman Empire when it becomes Christian to portray itself, at, you know, the, its existence, its role as the kind of the incubator of Christianity as being part of the divine plan. Against that, the book of Revelation is very, very overt in its hostility to Roman imperialism. And I would go so far as to say that it is the most influential work of anti-imperialism ever written. It's Ooh. it's almost certainly, I think, written after the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in AD 70, following an abortive rebellion by the people of Judea, which sees the annihilation of their temple and their great metropolis. So the author of Revelation, let's call him John, is clearly Jewish and so therefore is clearly haunted by the fate of Jerusalem and is, I think, that must be a contributory factor in his hostility to Rome. But I think more than that, there is a sense that the imperial city, which of course he describes as Babylon, as a a whore, as a, a prostitute robed in steeped in blood and gold, that this is everything that the New Jerusalem is not. The the, the whore of Babylon is counterpointed to the New Jerusalem that will descend at the the end of John's revelation. And John's understanding of Roman power is brilliantly sophisticated. I mean, you might almost call it a Marxist understanding because it recognizes that Roman power is upheld by trade and by its ability to control the shipping lanes that enable the whore to be given all her 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 fees of gold and and silk and wealth and the downfall of the whore of babylon is described as a cutting of those trade links so that 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 all that upholds mm. the wealth of rome is destroyed and that you know as i say is a brilliantly sophisticated understanding and the influence of that over the course of of the millennia has been hugely profound and continues to be profound in, to, to this day. A lot of contemporary anti-imperial discourse derives ultimately from the book of Revelation, I think. I mean, it's the, 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 the lineage isn't always clear, but if you trace it back through figures like Fanon or whatever, back through Marx, the influence of Revelation on them, as well as on apocalyptically minded Christians, I think is very profound. One of the things that has disturbed a a lot of uh, apocalyptically minded Christians, especially in the last century, is the the language in Revelation of the beast and of the mark of the beast, 666. Often, sometimes I think without thinking about the the Roman context here, how, how should we read that sort of language in Revelation as an anti-imperial text? I think it's fairly clearly an allusion to Nero, who is cast by 
by Tacitus as a monster. And the early Christians cast him as a monster as well, for, for the reasons that we've already discussed, that Nero targets the early Christians for overt persecution. The, the number of the beast seems to be I can never quite remember what the uh, how the uh, the numerology of it works, but it's a numerological representation of the name of Nero. And one of the things I think that is shadowing the beast is the the, the sense in which Nero can be framed as a kind of parody of Christ. This idea that Christ will come again. There are stories very very current that that last for decades and decades that Nero will come again stories that he will appear in the in the east mm. and there are jewish traditions in which nero is actually cast as someone who ends up becoming a jewish convert and fathering a line of very distinguished rabbis so all these kind of straight this sw strange swirl of stories that you get in revelation that you get in tacitus that you get in in suetonius the reports of false nero's appearing prophecies uh, Jewish traditions, they all bear witness to the the charisma of Nero. I mean, it may be a malign charisma, but the fact that he is such an outsized and terrifying presence in both the book of Revelation and in the great Roman historians is tribute to just what a, a domineering figure he is and, and, and the extent to which he seems to have put the imaginations of his contemporaries and near contemporaries into, into a kind of really, uh, a kind of blood-bolted uh, shadow. Hmm. There's a passage in the Gospels that often, I think due to familiarity and over-familiarity, I think is sometimes misunderstood. People know how to say, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's. But what what do you, as a historian who's been working in the area of Roman Empire for so long, when you see the account of Jesus being given Caesar's coin, what are the things that are running along in the background of that? Well, firstly... I think I think you're right. It is a very familiar passage. But I think one of the things that maybe doesn't leap out at people is how strange it is that the head of a man should be on the coin and that same man's head be appearing on coins that could be found in Spain or in Gaul or across the whole expanse of the empire. Because the, the particular head of, of the Caesar that Jesus looks at, presumably, is that of Tiberius, who is the heir of Augustus. But it's really Augustus who, who is the founder of so much in, in the Roman Empire, who puts his head on, on the coin in a way that Romans had not previously done. I do think that this idea that he's articulating there, you know, which could be summed up, I suppose, really as, as the kingdom of God is not of this world, is incredibly radical because this is this is hard both for Judeans and Romans to get a handle on. So when you think when you think of the passion narrative, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin. And it's evident that, I mean, we entirely can accept the idea that the priests of the temple that they're mixing what they're, they're figures, the kind of embodiment of religious rather than secular, they're priests. Mm. And that then when Jesus gets sent to Pilate, that Pilate in some way is the representative of the secular. So you have Jesus going before the priests, the Sanhedrin, 
he's facing the religious authorities and then he's being sent to Pilate. Pilate is the secular authority. But this isn't the case at all because Pilate, just as much as the Sanhedrin, is someone who actually is representative of the gods. He is the representative of Caesar and Tiberius is the son of Augustus, adoptive son of Augustus, who is a god. And the governor's residence is in Caesarea, which is named after the divine Augustus. And the Romans have their temple complex just as much as the Judeans do. The, the great temple in Rome is the temple of Jupiter on the Capitol. And this is just as fundamental to the way that the Romans understand the functioning of geopolitics as the temple is to the way that the Judeans understand how the world should be organized. So when Jesus appears both before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world, he is saying something really, really radical. He is he, he, he is saying that what he finds offensive, both about the temple authorities in Jerusalem and the pretensions of the Roman state, is that they are intermingling the dimension of the divine with the earthly. This is what he finds offensive. And that story of him saying that, you know, render unto Caesar and render unto God is 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 effectively saying that the two dimensions should be separated out. And this is something that is completely novel. It's it, it, The Gospels are really the first texts to articulate this sense that those dimensions can be separated. And over the course of Christian history, it will come to establish the sense that what today we call religion and the secular can be separated out. But it's a 2,000-year process of evolution. And today, in the 21st century, we take that so much for granted that we don't recognize just how radical it is and how deeply rooted in Christian presumptions it is, because it takes a long, long time for that sense to evolve. But back in Roman times, there was no sense of a division between the religious and the secular. They were so interfused that you couldn't possibly hope to separate them. You know, it'd be like trying to separate out tonic from the gin in a gin and tonic. Just can't be done. But Jesus is the person who starts that process. I want to talk about that radicalization in just a second. Before I do, though, you, you mentioned Rome as a Tyrannosaurus Rex of, of the ancient world. How can those of us who are Christians, when we think about crucifixion and the way that the the ancient world, particularly the the Roman world, would have understood crucifixion in ways that are difficult for us to understand now? I think it is a problem for Christians because I think, and indeed, not just for Christians, for anyone who is who lives in the West, because the cross has become the most globally recognized symbol that's probably ever existed. And what it symbolizes is the triumph of the slave over the slaver, of the victim over the victimizer, of the persecuted over the persecutor. That is not the connotations that it had for the Romans. To the Romans, crucifixion was a manifestation of their control of of their monopoly of violence, that anyone who opposed them could be put to death in the most brutal way. So 
paradigmatically, crucifixion is the, is the punishment that is inflicted on a slave. So if you think of Spartacus, you know, the Kirk Douglas film, all those, that, that, those kind of crosses mm -hmm. going up along the Appian Way, these are designed as, as essentially as billboards advertising the power that a master exercises over a slave. But this is then transplanted to the provinces because it is assumed by the Romans that if a, if a people submit to Rome, then they've acknowledged their own servile status relative to Roman power, and that therefore any hint of rebellion against Roman power is a kind of, you know, um, a, a, a servile insurgency. And so this is why rebels against Roman power in the provinces also get crucified. And the horror of a crucifixion is unspeakable. And again, I think we've become anesthetized to it. It's, it's the punishment for a slave because it is the worst imaginable punishment. And it's not just that it's physically agonizing, that it can be protracted, but that it is public, that people can gather and watch as birds peck out your eyes or attack your genitals, mm. can see you screaming, can see you after you've died hanging there like a slab of meat. It's, it's the humiliation as well as the pain that makes it so monstrous. And I do think that it is hard for us to kind of think ourselves back into that mindset. And when you are brought up against people who, who understand crucifixion as the Romans understood it, which happened to me when I went to make a documentary in Iraq about the Islamic State, and I found myself in a, a, a town where that had been occupied by the Islamic State and men had been crucified in that town. And the Islamic State were maybe a couple of miles away over no man's land. And to be in a place where people had been crucified and to know that there were people within striking distance who viewed crucifixion as the Romans had done, as a way of demonstrating their power and authority over their inferiors, it kind of opened up for me a realization of what crucifixion had meant for the Romans in, in a way that was much more visceral than, any, than I had had from simply reading books and opened up for me as well a sense of how radical and audacious it was for the Christians to say that someone who had suffered that death was in some way God. I mean, that it's, for people in the Roman world, it's not the idea that a, that a man can be a god that is shocking. Caesar Augustus is a god. Julius Caesar is a god. I mean, lots of emperors become gods. But it's the idea that someone who has suffered death on a cross can become a god. That is what is shocking. And how shocking must have been writings of Paul, not just saying that, but I glory in the cross. Cross is the yeah. power of God, the wisdom of God. I preach nothing but Christ in him crucified. I am crucified with Christ. I mean, this is an emphasis that he's making over and over again. It must have been breathtaking. I think you, when you read Paul's letters, they are, I mean, they're like dramatic soliloquies. You, you sense Paul sometimes arguing with himself, sometimes kind of almost stunned by the implications of what he's saying. And I think that the sense of almost bewilderment and stupefaction that Paul feels about the fact that the God he is preaching is crucified never goes. I mean, when he says, you know, it's a stumbling block 
to the Judeans. And, and it is a mm-hmm. cause of hilarity to the Greeks and the Romans. He's a Judean himself, and he's a Roman citizen. He speaks from experience of both those kind of civilizational viewpoints. And I think he feels it viscerally. And it's the marker of his conversion that he has transcended those perspectives to embrace the understanding of Christ crucified. But he hasn't lost the sense of, of, what, a, of what an utterly improbable and to most people repugnant move that actually is. Hmm. Well, you mentioned the way that, that the, the ideas in the Caesar's coin interaction have been radical in implications. And in your book, Dominion, the, the entire argument of the book goes through the ways that the modern world has been influenced by Christianity in ways that aren't usually obvious to people. We have, listening to this show, people who are committed Christians, weekly churchgoers, Bible readers, and we have people who are atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Buddhists, something else, but they're just interested and intrigued by a Christian perspective. I wonder what are the kinds of things that we take for granted that you would say, actually, this is a a radically Christian idea? Well, I think the idea of secularism is a really obvious one. So the United States mm. is is founded on the idea of a separation of powers, you know, that the, the religious and the uh, secular dimensions should be apart. And this is seen as, as uh, the secular is kind of cast as being neutral, a neutral space. But, but this isn't true at all. There is nothing like it in any other culture. And that, in fact, it, it's it's not just that it's Christian, but it's distinctively a, the Western form of Christianity. It's it's an understanding that derives, of course, ultimately from the Gospels, but but hugely influenced by Augustine, the great Latin scholar of the Church in the in the fourth and fifth centuries AD, who is writing in the wake of the sack of Rome in four ten, and there are lots of people that that Augustine would term pagans, who were saying this is the fault of the Christians, that they've led us to abandon the traditional rites that gave us the protection of the gods. And Augustine is saying, no, this isn't the case at all, because he is saying that there is nothing special about Rome at all. The Romans had an idea of religio, which is the bond that joins a mortal to the divine. And a religio to them would be, I don't know, a a sacrifice or feast day or a festival, something like that. And that you, you uphold the religiones. And this is like a kind of insurance policy that you, you pay a sacrifice to a God. That's the religio. And the God will then kind of look after you. But Augustine says there is, you know, you, that there are no multiple religiones. There is only the one religio, the one bond that joins humanity to the divine. And that this matters because everything in the fallen world, the mortal world, the Roman Empire included, is doomed to decay because it is bound upon what Augustine calls the cyclum, which is basically the, the, the term of a human life. And that, that everyone and everything on the fallen world is born, lives, and dies, and is swept away on the great currents of time. And that if humans want eternity 
then it is only the religio that is provided by the church that enables them to be joined to the eternity of heaven. And so Augustine is, is counterpointing the dimensions of the cyclum and the religio in a way that becomes hugely influential on Latin readers. So not on, you know, the Christians in Constantinople and the, the Greek-speaking half of the Roman Empire, but in the Latin half. And the Roman Empire in the West falls, but you get Latin-speaking Christian kingdoms that emerge over the rubble of the Roman Empire. And by the 11th century, you are having reformers in Latin Christendom who are kind of thinking through the, 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 the geopolitical implications of this doctrine that the dimension of religio should be distinct from earthly kingdoms. And they institute this kind of radical process of, of what they call reformatio, what we might call reformation, a process by which they try to stop emperors and kings from having a role in the dimension of the supernatural, which previously they had. You know, so, so bishops and popes were appointed by emperors and kings. But in the 11th century, radicals, particularly associated with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, say, no, this is unacceptable. And they force emperors and kings to accept it. And over the course of the Middle Ages, this idea that there are these rival dimensions of religio and the cyclum evolves and strengthens and deepens to become something completely unique, unprecedented in the history of global civilization. And following the Reformation in, in, in Britain, this, the cyclum becomes the secular, religio becomes religion, religion in Protestant England and by extension in Protestant America as well, comes to be seen as something that is both something that is that can be attributed to, that is separate from the secular. So, you know, the religion in, in England is Protestant, you might say, but also it's something that is personal to an individual. So you might say, what is his religion? He's a Catholic, he's a Protestant, whatever. And this, this is an idea that the British then export around the world. And of course, in America, you will get agnostics, atheists, people who would define themselves as being anti-religious, saying, well, we are secularists. Why can't religion get out of the secular without recognizing often that that is itself <laughs> entirely parasitic upon a Christian way of understanding the world? And it's a process of, of stepping back and saying, are things that I take for granted, are they just the way they are or are they culturally contingent? And if they're culturally contingent, where are they coming from? And if you live in a Western country, the place where they are coming from almost certainly is a Christian one. And I think that this is, you know, this makes it a challenge for, say, Muslims or Jews or whoever in Western secular states. Because essentially, for Christians, this is something that culturally they've always, they've always had. It's, it's a, because it's a product of Christianity, it is easier for Christians to accept the existence of a secular sphere. I think it's much more of a challenge, say, for Muslims, because this sense, you know, we talk of the separation of church and state. We don't talk of, of, of there being a separation between mosque and state, because that separation is something that is essentially a Western concept. Mm -hmm. 
What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. In the aftermath of the October 7th, Hamas attacks on Israel. It, it seems to me a lot of the conflict between people who are basically pro-Israel and people who are basically pro-Palestinian, to put those in really simplistic terms. But the argument tends to be over who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors. Yeah. And I wonder how you see the development of our our categories for having that conversation about human rights. Where where does that come from? Well, of course, there are, you know, that there used to be a lot of Palestinian Christians. They're much fewer in number now. Lots of them have kind of gone into exile. So it's not like there are no Christians involved in the tragedy of what's happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment. But mm-hmm. by and large, it, it is mediated in, you know, if we're looking at the dimension of, of religious culture, Jewish and, and Muslim terms. So the person in Sweden who's who thinks of himself or herself as completely secularized and distant from religion, but who is looking at all of these sorts of questions through that grid of individual human dignity, human rights, who are the oppressed and who should be stood with. Those are all, uh, again, as you say, kind of parasitic off of off of earlier Christian ideas. I, I, I think so. And I think that this is why the the kind of the 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 Israel and Palestine is such a uniquely the the moral calculus of it is so hard for people in the west to calculate to work mm-hmm. out because uh, as you say it is ultimately you know our sympathies ultimately of most people are with those who are who are suffering the most and those who are the most vulnerable and with palestine and israel the the question of who is the most vulnerable shifts depending on where you are standing so if you it's evident for instance that the the people of gaza relative to the israeli defense force are indisputably vulnerable. They, they, 
you know, there's, they have no way of opposing the Israeli Defense Force. In Gaza, the IDF can effectively do what they want. So does that, and that I think is, you know, the, the particularly happening over Christmas, you think of the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, the sense mm. that children are dying at the hands of people who are armed with the most up-to-date military technology. I think that that plays a huge role in the sympathy for the Palestinian cause that you will find it, uh, you know, across the West. But simultaneously, the horrors that were visited on Israelis by Hamas, and more broadly, the sense that Israel is the only Jewish state and is surrounded by people who wish to destroy it utterly. That makes, you know, Israel in that sense is a kind of David opposing a mail-clad Goliath. And so it's perfectly possible for that sense of sympathy with with the underdog, with with the with the with with the person who is weak relative to its opponents. It's also possible to feel, you know, sympathy for, for Israel, which is why I think it's proving so impossible in the West for a single narrative to emerge. It's why sympathies are so evenly divided between Israelis and Palestinians. And why, and that in turn, I think is is reflective of the broader sense that that both sides in, have right on their side. It's the fact that both sides do have right on their side that makes it so difficult to, you know, to to decide what should happen there. Hmm. Last question for you, and it's a question that I ask many people, and many people are asking me. And for you as somebody who who has looked at the broad sweep of history, when we look around right now and we see institution after institution in crisis, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, you see the rise of these populist movements, many of them illiberal populist movements uh, all over the world. You see the rise of social media and the ways that that's affecting everything from mental health to global politics. The the question that I would have for you is, are these uniquely crazy times or is this just the way things have always been and we're noticing it? I mean, yes and no. I So on social media and AI, these are very disruptive and are going to become even more disruptive. And I think that the internet and, and 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 I'm sure AI, maybe even more so, it, you know, it's analogous to the role the printing press played. Mm. There would not have been the Reformation, I think, without the printing press. And I, I think that at the moment, probably since the 60s, we are going through a movement that is analogous to the Reformation. It took until the 17th century for people to realize that they'd been living through something called the Reformation. And so probably we'll have to wait maybe until, I don't know, the 22nd century for historians to work out what it is that we're currently living through. So I do think in that sense, we are living through a very, very convulsive process of change. But, but, but against that, you could say that living through a convulsive process of change is part of the condition of living in, in a Christian civilization. Because Christianity is inherently subversive. The idea that the last should be first and the first shall be last is 
a precarious one on which to build a, a permanently stable order. I mean, it's like building San Francisco on the San Andreas Fault. It can stand there absolutely secure for decades and decades. And then you get, you know, a, a, a great earthquake and everything comes tumbling down and you have to rebuild it. So that idea of a reformation, a reformatio, as I said, it goes back to the 11th century. And the 16th century reformation was simply another iteration of that. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the revolutions that happened in England and America, the revolutions, the, 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 the process of profound cultural change that we're living through at the moment. In a sense, yes, they are always something distinctive and new. But in another sense, they are iterations of an ongoing trend that is associated with the distinctive character, I think, of Western Christianity. So whether that's a source of reassurance or not, I don't know. But I, I mm-hmm. you know, in, in the United States, you have had many, many awakenings, great awakenings, and mm-hmm. you are living through a great awakening now. And because the United States is so culturally We're living through a great awakening now. Absolutely. Don't you think? I think, I mean, I, you know, it's been called the great awakening. Mm, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's very, very clear that, that what people would call woke is simply another iteration of the yearning that has been hardwired into Protestant America for a, 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 a sense of, of purification, a, a consciousness of sin, a yearning to, to be absolved of sin. And these awakenings, they come and they go but they are always expressive of a deeply held instinct that goes back to the very founding of America and before that to impulses that were roiling England during the, during the Reformation. So in that sense, it, it, it doesn't seem anything that is particularly unexpected. But at the same time, of course, each, new, each awakening is, is something new and felt to be disruptive in a different way. And I think that that's what we're going through at the moment. Mm. The new book is called Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. And with that, the book Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Tom Holland, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much for The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate Producers, Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media, Matt Stevens. Audio Engineering, provided by Dan Phelps. Video Producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.